I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. Um, I have a few announcements tonight. Uh, the first of which is that, um, as many of you know, we, we record these talks, and uh, at first we had them, uh, the videos only available to members, and uh, it, last year we made the, last, the most recent 12 videos available to the public, um, and then the back catalog available to, to all members. Um, and what we saw is that a lot more people started seeing the videos, of course, and actually a lot more people became members. So we, we thought we might lose members by doing this, but because it turns out all of you members, how many of you are members in this room? Thank you very much. Um, that all of you who are members really are members to support Long Now and less to get through gated content. So working with our media partner for a TV, um, as of today, we're making the entire back catalog free to everyone. And so we really appreciate your support as members, and hopefully we'll continue to have it. Um, and then we have another announcement, also working with Fora, uh, is a new way to consume some of that video. To give you an idea of how the app works, um, it's, uh, it's, you can just search for Long Now on the iTunes store uh, right now, uh, and you can get this on all your iOS devices as well as on Apple TV. Um, we have uh, about 50 of the most recent videos on the app now because that's when we started filming in HD. Uh, going and we'll continue to add those going forward um, and you can access the entire catalog uh, back catalog online um, on our website so thank you very much for all of your support and hopefully you can now watch uh, more of the videos in more formats than and ways to watch them on your couch with your iPad uh, than before I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Um, now these are called seminars about long-term thinking, but more than most, this is a kind of beyond thinking to a seminar about long-term behavior. And a person who's been studying that his entire life is Walter Michel. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, the um, little film that you saw uh, is not um, one that I made, uh, but it was made, I think it was made at Stanford, and it's got quite a few inaccuracies that I'd like to point out to you. <laughs> I mean, the first thing is these marshmallows, which are now surrounded by a halo of light, <laughs> are actually enormous. And the ones that we used when we used marshmallows were deliberately very tiny. Now, this is very important because uh, the whole idea is to create an intense conflict for the child. Uh, so it's a choice 
that is a tough, tough choice because you can have this little one or the two. Uh, the, let me show you what the actual setup is uh, that we used. It's in this picture. And what you're seeing is there's a child here. This is actually um, from a study that we did in South America years after the original studies at the Bing Nursery School at Stanford University, which were done in the period from about 1964 to 1974. I was at Stanford for 21 years, beginning in 1962, and then I moved to Columbia University, where I still am currently. So what you're seeing here is a little kid, in this case somewhere around age five towards six, who is waiting with two tiny things in front of her. They're actually not so tiny in this case, because what she chose were Oreo cookies. So very often, we don't use marshmallows, particularly the moms at Stanford had a big thing about how many of the children were not allowed to eat stuff without, like that without having a toothbrush at hand. So uh, it's uh, methodological problems of that kind that make rigorous research uh, difficult. <laughs> so, uh, and the child has a bell. That's true in all of the studies that we ran and that other people who have been using the procedure for research uh, do. So at any point, the child can ring the bell and bring the researcher back. It's also very important to build a trust relationship with the child first so that she believes that you're really coming back. That's uh, fundamental. And what the child has on the tray in front of her are two Oreo cookies on the right side and one Oreo cookie on the left side. So all the goodies that she's chosen from a whole array of possibilities are right there. The conflict is intense, and the question is, how long does she wait until she either begins to eat the thing uh, or to ring the bell to bring the researcher back? And as I say, it's very important to have a trust relationship with the child and to make sure that what she's waiting for is something that she really wants. So uh, one of the uh, important questions is, uh, does it matter? Is it, is it interesting? Uh, I got interested in this topic. Uh, really, I stumbled into it at the kitchen table on the Stanford campus where I lived at the time with, with three uh, daughters uh, who were four, five, and six. They were very closely spaced. And I became fascinated by the question of what makes it possible for kids to begin to have self-control, for any of us to begin to delay gratification, to give up something that we want immediately for the sake of something that's temporally distant. And for kids, 15 minutes can seem like an eternity. For me, too, 15 minutes can seem uh, like an eternity. So uh, the, the question that I realized I couldn't answer at the time was what goes on in a human head that makes this possible? And I didn't have a clue. So I wanted to develop a method in which we could see what do children actually do that makes it possible for them. So this began in no way as a test. I still don't think it's good to call it a test. It's the media that called it a test. I call it a method or a measure. Um, 
to, to have a measure in which we can see what the natural ways are in which people begin to manage this. And what we found were really uh, the, the diverse strategies that kids use for this purpose. Uh, but it does matter. It turns out it does matter, not nearly as much as the medium make it out to matter, but it matters. Uh, there are correlations. There are connections. They're not co they're only correlations. And they're often statistically significant, but they're not overwhelming. They, they are sufficient to have an idea that, on the whole, it's a pretty good idea to be able to delay gratification even when you're very young. Um, but it is not nearly sufficiently strong to think that how long a particular child is going to wait for the two cookies or the two marshmallows or two, the two M&Ms or whatever is really going to be able to strongly predict the individual's future. You can say something about group effects, but you can say virtually nothing about the individual child. Uh, on the whole, though, they did, when we retested them uh, in some of the studies, have higher SAT scores. Uh, they had better social cognitive functioning. This is when we looked at them as young adolescents. They yielded less to temptation and had more grit. They were less distractible, coped better with stress, dealt better with frustration. This is sort of on the whole. Uh, at, at age four, um, there was a reasonably strong prediction to body mass index 30 years later. And consistent self-control, that is, if we take kids who are consistently on a variety of measures as they're growing up, able to delay gratification, and compare them to a group that is at the low end consistently on diverse measures of self-regulation, uh, we found when these kids came back at age 40 to 45, so these are studies just done about five or six years ago, to the Stanford campus and were tested uh, both on cognitive measures and in the fMRI itself, that there were distinctive expected differences in brain activation areas when they tried to inhibit responses to attractive or hot stimuli um, while they were in the scanner. So on the whole, high self-control people tend to be more able to inhibit hot responses. The question that I th think is really important is, does delayability early in life protect as well as predict? Does it have a protective effect, for example, against excessive acting out, bullying, extreme aggression, depression, borderline personality, and vulnerable individuals? And on the whole, again, just correlations, and not all that high, but statistically better than chance. Uh, the answer is yes. Is in aggressive young children and adolescents, yes. In adults with high anxiety about rejection, yes. In individuals prone to develop borderline features of personality, yes. In those prone to obesity, yes. Let me just pause now before going on to some of these findings uh, to tell you about what the 
spontaneous strategies are that kids actually use. You saw some of them in the film. But one that is, for me, particularly memorable with Oreo cookies is a, a young guy, very neatly dressed, nice necktie, white shirt, beautifully combed hair, who examined the door to make sure it was shut, <laughs> checked it very carefully, opened the first Oreo cookie, licked out the entire inside, <laughs> closed it immediately, replaced it in the identical position where it was, took the second Oreo cookie, gave it the identical treatment, licked out the inside, replaced the cover, put it back in exactly the same place, went on and did the same with the third, and then struck a pose of utter innocence, <laughs> looking, looking at the door. So uh, to me, quite remarkable also was that when I presented that information and showed that video at a talk at Columbia University, the provost shouted in joy, give that boy a scholarship to come here, <laughs> which I thought was a somewhat strange uh, moral uh, reaction uh, to the uh, behavior at hand. But Now, let me just... Let me give you an example of the protective effects of being able to delay gratification. Uh, take the a dimension of personality that I think is very important because it's so widely shared, which is the tendency to be anxious about the possibility of getting rejected, which a lot of us have. So it's defined really as a tendency to easily perceive rejection and to overreact by becoming aggressive or withdrawn or depressed or to have lowered self-esteem and essentially to behave in a way that makes rejection a self-fulfilling prophecy. You worry about it so much that you behave in a way to be sure to get it. Now, this is a, a summary of a lot of research. And what it shows you, there is only one unhappy face, right, that red unhappy face in the lower left-hand box there, you see it. And um, in the, it is the condition in which kids in preschool were showing low delayability, but as adults, they had high rejection sensitivity. And so what these kids, as, as in the follow-ups, uh, as adults were showing were a lot lower positive functioning, lower self-esteem, lower educational levels, and higher cocaine crack use. Not that there was a huge amount of it, but there was some of it. So the protective effects of, of delayability are quite substantial. And then at the bottom of that graph, you're seeing middle school follow-up of kids that were tested in very different circumstances, not on an elite college campus, uh, uh, but in the South Bronx of New York, where these kids from the, really from the bottom of the socioeconomic div uh, divide, who had the combination of strong tendencies towards feeling rejection sensitivity and being anxious about it, and low delayability, we're in this vulnerable cell with lower self-worth, lower self-acceptance, uh, self lower peer acceptance, and higher aggression. So the, the point I'm making is that, to me, it is more important that delayability 
has protective effects and the inability to delay gratification has quite serious potential negative effects. But the key question that has motivated this research for all these years and that has caught on in many other labs is to understand the mechanisms, the mental mechanisms and the brain mechanisms that make delay either hard or easy. And that is what I think is the most important thing to come out of those experiments. And what they showed very clearly also is that delay skills, cognitive skills that make it possible for kids and adults to wait, can be taught. This, I think, is the most important slide that I'm going to show you. And it is that the human brain has really in it two closely interacting systems. One is the hot system. It's the limbic system. It's a go system. It's emotional. It's simple. It's reflexive. It's fast. You saw it in the kids who shoved the stuff into their mouth so fast. It's amygdala-centered. It develops early in life. And very importantly, it is accentuated by stress. It is increased by stress. And it is fundamentally the thing that creates stimulus control, where our marshmallows, our cookies, our liquor is controlling us. We're not controlling it. The other system in the brain is a cool system or a no system. It's a cognitive system. It's complex. It's reflective. It allows us to give ourselves self-instructions and to take the future and future consequences into account. It's frontal lobe and hippocampus-centered. It develops later in life. It is attenuated by stress and it's fundamental for self-control. So the issues in making self-control possible is that when people are living under conditions of high stress, the hot system becomes dominant and the cool system goes down or doesn't even develop well. And this is critically important for educational purposes. It's critically important for how we think about our children and how we think about the future. It's critically important, I think, for how we think about ourselves. And it has clear implications for what we need to do if we want to be more able to take the future into account, which is this, that by changing how we mentally represent the objects of desire, by changing how we mentally represent them, we can change what their effect is on us. For example, if the kids are cued before they start to wait, if you want to, when you want to, you can think about how yummy and chewy and delicious the marshmallows are. The bell is rung within moments. If you think, on the other hand, if you want to while you're waiting, how the marshmallows are puffy and round like clouds or cotton balls, the same child who would ring the bell within 30 seconds under the yummy and chewy priming is going to be able to wait up to 15 minutes 
So critically important is how is the object of desire, the thing that is pulling the response, mentally represented? If the kids are waiting for pretzels on a cue to think ahead of time, how salty and crunchy it is, the bell rings. If they're th thinking about it in abstract or cool terms, pretzels are thin like little sticks, they can wait a long time. Same child. This is a summary of a lot of studies that essentially manipulate whether or not the rewards are represented in cool or abstract terms or in hot arousing terms. And it's clear that delay time hugely depends on the nature of that mental representation. And if we can re represent it one way, we can represent it the other way too. So it makes it something that we don't have to be the victims of, but that we can actually learn to regulate and control. Uh, for me, a very powerful single example uh, that I want to share with you is a study in which we suggested to the children ahead of time, if you want to, when you want to, you can make, it isn't, make believe that it isn't really there, that it's just a picture. You know what a picture is. Yes, a picture is something with a frame around it. Yeah, so if you want to, when you want to, while you're waiting, you can make believe it's just a picture, put a frame around it in your head, okay? And the same child who, when she's looking at it and thinking that it's real, rings the bell within moments, is able to wait 14 minutes, 13 minutes, 15 minutes, quite a long time. When I asked Amy in this case, how do you explain this? How come you, you waited here, but you didn't wait there? And she had, I thought, a wonderfully clear answer. You can't eat a picture. That is, she understood and grasped the importance of the change in the representation. So the basic principle that comes out of this for educational purposes or for long-term thinking is that what is critical is to cool the now through distraction, through self-distancing, the kids push it away, they play with their uh, ear canals, they play with their nasal canals, they <laughs> pretend that their toes, which in California were beautifully exposed in their thongs and so on, are piano keys, they invo get involved in dialogues in which they're giving themselves self-instructions and they're mouthing the instructions. There are endless ways in which the kids are illustrating the fundamental critical strategies that in turn are teachable. If there's a major finding that comes out not just from my research, but from research on mind-brain behavior relations in the last 30 years, it is that self-regulation, emotion regulation, delay of gratification, willpower, depends on cognitive skills and motivation, and that by changing how we represent our temptations cognitively, we can use the cool system to regulate the hot system. The value of self-control, I think, is pretty evident, and I don't want to dwell on it for long. It's critical for emotional intelligence, for empathy. It enables real choice. We control our marshmallows. They don't control us. It increases our sense of freedom and agency. It's we who decide when to ring the bell and when to self-reward. 
But I want to also emphasize that a life without the hot system is as sad as the one without the cool system. That is, we also have to know when it is time to ring the bell and when it is time to allow ourselves to have the pleasures of life. Is it all pre-wired is a question that is often asked, particularly by the media. Your future in a marshmallow was a, a heading on a radio lab interview, to which my emphatic answer is absolutely not. And it's the reason that I wrote the marshmallow test, Mastering Self-Control, to try to help overcome that serious misperception. Attention control strategies and cognitive transformations to cool the immediate temptations and heat the delayed consequences is what's important. I'd like to give you a brief example from my own life. When I was 32 years old, I was severely addicted to cigarettes, to tobacco. I smoked three packs a day. I supplemented it with a pipe. I felt that was very professorial. Uh, uh, at that time, smoking was allowed, even at Stanford University, and I parade up and down the podium and so on with the, with the pipe. Uh, I, re I realized, of course, that the Surgeon General's reports were coming out, so I had the information. I knew that there were future consequences, that there was increasing evidence that there could be cancer, that there could be all kinds of negative effects on my life, and I proceeded to completely ignore them. Uh, I realized that I might have a problem when I found myself in the shower one day with the lit pipe in my mouth. <laughs> so this gave me some concern, uh, but I have a very good psychological immune system, and I was able to rationalize my way out of that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and it made no difference. Soon after that, I had an experience which is walking in the hallways of the Stanford Medical School. Uh, I saw uh, a man on a gurney being wheeled through the hall. And his head was shaved with little green marks, little green X's, and his chest was bare with little green X's. And I asked the nurse, what's going on with him? And she said, well, those green marks are the places where the radiation is going. I couldn't shake the image because what that image did for me is it made hot the delayed consequences. And holding on to that image uh, every time namely every three minutes, that I was ready to take another cigarette, uh, while at the same time ch changing the representation of the cigarette from something that was terrific and the pipe is something that was professorial to two sources of acute poisoning uh, made the change possible, and I have not smoked anything since then, while completely retaining the conviction that if I took a cigarette this evening, I would be back on it again. So the, the, the point that I want to make is that if we're going to talk seriously about taking long-term consequences like climate change into account, we've got to make them hot. We have to really make them hot. And that's not easy to do, but it, 
And one of the reasons that it's not easy to do is because that limbic system, that hot system, which activates automatically when we have high stress, is there for good reason. It saves us on the highway because we immediately reflexively throw on the brakes when something is coming at us. And it's terrific if we're dealing with snakes or it's terrific if we're in a situation where lions are oncoming. But most of the time, those are not the challenges that we face currently. Uh, consequently, the critical thing is to enhance and develop the cool system and to be able to use it when it comes to considering long-term consequences. So the personal implications of this line of research range from teaching self-control skills in KIPP schools, those are knowledge is power program schools that are very importantly being experimented with in the Bronx of New York, to public policy and narrowing the economic divide. Can it make a difference? I think it can. The human, the human brain has far more plasticity than has long been assumed. We don't have to be the victims of our biological and social biographies. That's at the personal level. But what I want to focus on for the rest of the evening uh, with Stuart is what are the wider implications of this for the issues that are of concern to this group and to society. The hot brain is ideal for coping with snakes and so on, but we're no longer in the Pleistocene. But it's indifferent to long-term consequences from the ultimate effects of tobacco to the ultimate effects of climate change. And it misleads us tremendously in our assessment of risks, whether in personal decisions, business decisions, policy decisions, educational decisions. So the question that I want to have us thinking about for the rest of the evening, if not longer, is can the marshmallow lessons help us use the cool brain to cope with the future disasters that can lie ahead if we don't. Thank you very much. That's great. Have a seat and we'll carry on. When you were 33 and having uh, your experience at Stanford Medical School with the guy with the green X's, um, you had done this work already with the kids and the marshmallows? Uh, no, when I was 33 was exactly when the work started to begin. Mm -hmm. uh, was there a connection between your figuring out what to do about nicotine and what to do uh, to do well, I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure there was a connection. Really? I, I have no question that there was a connection um, with two with two aspects of my life. One is the, is the struggle with the tobacco, and the other one is to see what was happening to my three kids mm -hmm. as they went through this transformation from being a really um, totally adorable, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, ab absolutely impossible, I mean, all the things that kids are, mm -hmm. but utterly unable to regulate or control themselves. Uh -huh. And then in such a short time, uh -huh. in such a very short time, within the first two years, uh -huh. to have really their own agenda, 
you know, their own, their own plans, their mm -hmm. own sense, uh, their own will, if mm -hmm. you wish, uh, the sense of what they wanted to do and what they could do. In the, th in the third year, it wasn't really still quite clear. They were stumbling around, they had these ideas of what they wanted to do and so on, but they didn't have the strategies. Mm -hmm. And then this remarkable thing happens in the fourth and fifth year, where the strategies begin to develop. And mm -hmm. they, if you ask them, uh, how to do it, for example, if you, if you put them in situations where they have a choice, it would be easier to wait for those things um, if they're there like that or if you put the cover on them. Okay? Mm. Um, when they're about three and a half, they often say, it'll be easy if I just uh, can see them and then immediately take them. Right, right. <laughs> uh, by the time they're at the end of the fourth year and into the fifth year, mm -hmm. they're beginning to consistently say, cover them up uh, and, and attempt to do that. Uh, what you don't see in the film that we played, but what you do see in the films that I can't show because mm -hmm. research restrictions prevent them from being shown, right. is kids uh, hiding, covering their eyes, hmm. uh, turning away, and that uh, works, I think. Uh, that works m quite quite well, uh, um, and um, giving themselves self instructions that take them out of the situation and that allow them to distract, so that even if the objects are out there and uncovered, they're not focusing on them. They're you know singing their little songs or playing with their toes and so on. Well, yeah, I mean, you had the perfect sort of scientific experiment going on in your home with these daughters. Okay, they're all the same gender. They're three, four, and four, five, and six, I guess. Well, when you were well uh, the, the, at three, you know, you can see the confusions. Mm -hmm. At four, you begin to get a clear picture. By five, they really have it, and it's, at six, it's, it's pretty much done. So what you call executive function is basically coming into play. Is there actual brain development going on prefrontally and stuff? Enormous brain development is going mm -hmm. on. And, uh, however, if you're looking at the development of the cool system, Mm -hmm. uh, it really doesn't come fully in until people are in there somewhere in their twenties. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the understanding We're of that twenties. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, in some in some cases it doesn't fully develop until they're in their eighties. But <laughs> <laughs> if then, <laughs> um, were you? I mean, you were, I guess, a psychologist. Uh, professionally at that time, were you a child psychologist, or was it... Oh, I never knew what kind of psychologist I was, really. Uh, uh, I, my work has crossed uh, the area. I was trained in clinical psychology. Okay. Uh, and um, clinical psychology was what drove me into the field. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I became very interested in developmental questions. I became interested in cognitive issues, mm -hmm. how, the, how the mind and brain mm -hmm. uh, work. I became very interested in personality and who we are, in the structure of personality. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons that that links very importantly to what we're talking about tonight is because mm -hmm. When you look closely at people's self-control patterns, uh, the superficial 
impression that we have is, oh, that person is terrific at self-control, this one has none. People describe themselves as saying, you know, Lucy has willpower, I have no willpower. Mm -hmm. uh, these are quite inaccurate descriptions. A far more accurate an analysis would show that we all have hot spots whether it's cigarettes, whether it's marshmallows, whether it's Oreo cookies, whether it's our temper. Hmm. Uh, and therefore, the first step in any, at, the, at the individual level, at the, mm -hmm. at the personal level, uh, in any effort to, uh, to achieve better self-regulation, better self-control, is to identify where do you need it? Mm -hmm. Where are your hot spots? Hmm. Once they're identified, it becomes possible to use if-then plans. If my hotspot gets activated, then I, you know. You have some kind of workaround. That, yeah, then, yeah, then you have a strategy, a plan in place that becomes automatic and allows you to get out of the hole. So we're going back and forth between talking about kids and grown-ups, it sounds yeah. like. And well, the, is, the fundamentals are not different. The fundamentals are not different. Not different. I mean, the, the objects, the marshmallows change. Mm -hmm. The temptations <laughs> change, you know. Your marshmallow was uh, the, the pipe and the, and the cigarettes and so on at one point. Yes, among others. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, what we saw in this wonderful brief presentation is clearly the work of actually many decades. And I'm curious, the sort of sequence of what did you get right away and what took a while to emerge? I mean, some of the things having to do with brain function and so on must have come later. Much later. Uh, I mean, what emerged for me, what was really exciting to me, uh, was to, uh, to, to see and test the cognitive skills that made it either impossible mm -hmm. uh, for the kid, the lack of cognitive skills that made it impossible for them to control themselves, even when they really much wanted to, when the motivation was high, hmm. uh, and, and the skills that were highly teachable that go from the earliest, which is distract, which every parent knows that a terrific way to help kids who are in, under high stress and having a colleague or whatever problems is to try to help them distract themselves. Mm -hmm. And kids learn as Here a first the self... pacifier or whatever. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, uh, to, to, to get off it, to, or, or you know, do a rattle or do, do a mobile or do mm -hmm. something to get them distracted, which is what they spontaneously do when you actually see uh, what they're doing. But then it goes from, in, the, in those years, from four to six, it goes from self-distraction to learning how to do abstraction. Huh. By abstraction, I mean to cool the thing uh -huh. by pretending it's not there, by, by focusing on its cool features, not its hot features, uh -huh. by stopping to think and focus on the yummy, chewy, Mm -hmm. appetitive qualities and to get off that and to instead sort of turn away from the objects of desire, check every once in a while to make sure that they're still there, mm -hmm. but then distract yourself and keep going. So one of the previous speakers in the series was Daniel Kahneman, who put quite a blurb on your book. How does your hot and cool uh, mental activity relate to his system one, the system two, thinking fast, thinking slow? There, there, there's a clear overlap. Uh, uh, Danny Kahneman is, uh, is afraid to talk about the brain. Uh, 
uh, I'm less afraid and I've worked with, uh, not that I'm a neuroscientist, not remotely, but I've worked Has somebody with else done, I mean, you've done the, uh, taken the neuroscience angle on it. Has anybody else uh, sort of paid no attention to Danny and just gone ahead and done, see if there's any system one, system two in the brain? Um, I, I think that I what mean, he's way, clearly you know. talking about, you mm -hmm. know, his characters are... Uh, if he were a little less fearful, he would be talking about um, the limbic system mm -hmm. uh, and talking about the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, the evolutionary history of the prefrontal cortex is a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's we're just getting a, a decent prefrontal cortex right. in terms of evolutionary time. We have a terrific hot system, and we have a highly vulnerable cool system, but. I think that he's talking about very similar things. His focus is the ways in which um, System 1 uh -huh. uh, messes us up. And how, therefore, we Yeah, therefore, the enormous mistakes that uh -huh. we make. Uh, in my own work, I, perhaps as a clinical psychologist, I've been much more interested uh, in the ways in which we can r regulate the system uh -huh. one, uh, and enjoy it, uh, and at the same time, uh, keep the future and the important goals in mind and work towards them. So in a, in a way, I think he, he deals with very similar phenomena, but talks about what the risks for decision-making uh -huh. are. And I tried to focus instead on what the possibilities for enhancing long-term uh, focus uh, are. It, it, it's hard not to characterize the two of you a little bit uh, in that Danny Kahneman comes across as kind of a pessimist, and um, you don't. You seem to be more optimistic about things. Is that accurate, do you think? Uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's probably true on the whole. Right. Uh, <laughs> the pessimist is saying things are interestingly terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and the optimist in this case is saying, well, maybe we can fix this. Um, question from Daniel. Is there any measure of happiness amongst there, there, the cases? This case Daniel is not Danny Kahneman, I said. No, no, a different one. <laughs> Unless, <laughs> this is not a question Danny Kahneman would ask, but A. Daniel says, uh, is there any measure of happiness among the cases of your longitudinal studies? Uh, the, you know, the, the sort of success modes, did that also map onto something you might call happiness? Uh, I, I think that, um, well, I mean, to, to answer uh, uh, Daniel's question, uh, I'm not aware of studies uh, that mm -hmm. uh, combine self-control measures with happiness measures. Uh, there, uh, so mm -hmm. uh, I'm not aware of it, but I think it is safe to say in answer to what Daniel, I suspect, has in mind, uh, that um, it, it, there's no such thing as happiness if you don't enjoy the hot system, and there's no such thing as happiness if you're not able to cool it also. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the fundamental challenge for all of us is how to make the discriminations about when to go for the marshmallow and when to forego it. Mm -hmm. uh, and to, to, to make that possible in a way that you're in control of it. I mean, for me, the main interest in the research is to help people be more agentic 
so that they have choice. Mm -hmm. If you don't know how to delay, a grati uh, to delay gratification, you don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. If you do know, you have a choice. That's interesting. One of the things Long Now Foundation takes as a guideline is, you know, we want civilization to have more options, and I think a lot of the idea of education is that people have more options, and it sounds like that partly maps onto what you're talking about. We're getting some notes from uh, alumni of uh, Marshmallow. Here's one from uh, Sophie Sacularius. I'm mispronouncing that. My sisters and I were subjects of the Marshmallow test as kids. We all waited. Um, Have you investigated whether having siblings influences the ability to delay gratification? <laughs> and I did see, by the way, in the film, there was one case where the two yeah, kids two looked like them, twins. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, by the way, okay, first of all, anything having to do with mapping of siblings onto whether the kids waited or not? Uh, you mean what the, what the yeah, correlation the is kids between the... Yeah, uh, big family kids? Don't know. Who knows, okay. But I, I uh, what's the name of the questioner? Here, you got it. Uh, Sophie, uh, I mean, how do you know that you all waited? I mean... Uh, <laughs> I, I think I think one of the one of the clear things about this is people don't remember and don't know whether or not they did, and then they tell themselves stories about ah. whether or not they did. You know? <laughs> and and we uh, 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 part of <laughs> part of part of what made the research possible over the years is that nobody really was told how long they waited, with one exception. I did have a very touching request from the wife of someone who uh, was in the study. Uh, and the, this guy uh, was dying at an early age. I think he was in his 40s. And his, his request was to find out how long he waited. Uh, I mean, I'm quite, quite serious. And, uh, Usually that's something that we would have to go through an internal review board and so on, but I decided <laughs> I'm skipping the internal review board. And I told him, and he had waited a nice, decent amount of time, and had, he had spent his time sort of singing while he was, but it didn't seem to, so. This, I'll come back then. Yeah. De death uh, is gonna come up again. Sophie, I'd love to meet you afterwards. Come around. <laughs> Well, here's another one. Uh, looks like Luigi writes, my 50-year-old son Steve was one of the subjects here marshmallow study at Stanford. He is now an attorney with an MBA, works in finance in Boston, has good income and considerable savings in the bank, but lives in a small apartment with his family. He claims he never ate the marshmallow. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> How? Can I encourage him to abandon delayed gratification and buy a home? <laughs> the, the, the question is, is that true? <laughs> Cannot say. True, Do not know. True to him. So that's what you're saying. Um, now we get into generations and cohorts a little bit. Ruby Mehta asks, um, what do you believe is the influence of technology, for example, iPhone overuse on delay ability in young kids today? How can delay ability be enhanced in an age defined by instant uh, digital and electronic gratification? 
Well, I, I think what's changed uh, with the uh, information technology revolution is that the number of, uh, of temptations and the number of distractions that, that are possible are enormous. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that that in any way necessarily means that the ability to self-regulate uh, is going down. Uh, I think when I see my grandchildren doing all this stuff with the thumbs and so on, I, I've often worried about what's going to become of them, but they seem to be doing just fine. Uh, my, my sense, not on the basis of my six grandchildren, but on the basis of, of, of the research that's available, uh, is that uh, the number of potential distractors keeps multiplying. But the growth in executive function and executive skills also keeps going because what the kids are doing with their thumbs is actually uh, quite, quite uh, relevant to the growth of executive control. Just the I mean, they're not the just they're, uh, maybe not texting and maybe not Instagram, mm -hmm. but lots of other things that they're doing. For example, some of the games they're playing are mm -hmm. very, very much cognitive games where you have to keep a goal in mind uh, and you have to um, uh, resist distractions. I'll give you an example from other people's research who are studying self-regulation in kids and trying to see if computer games are going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, so you have, uh, for example, with five-year-old kids, a situation where there's, there's, they're watching on the computer uh, a cat on a shrinking island, and uh, the water uh, is increasing, the island is getting smaller and smaller, mm -hmm. and you've got to do stuff to keep the cat as dry as possible. So this is, or you have a cat or other organism running around, and it's pouring, and your job is to keep the cat dry, and there's an umbrella floating around, and your job is to keep the umbrella on, uh, on, on the running animal. These are all cognitive skills mm -hmm. that are being learned, where you have to resist distraction, keep your focus on the thing, and so on. So I'm saying it's a complicated question mm -hmm. in which there is, on the one hand, a, a growth in the number uh, of ways of uh, killing time and distracting yourself, uh, but also a growth in uh, executive function skills. So at the universities, you've seen cohorts of students coming through and uh, looking at them with your, your eye. Um, do you see a, a growth of sort of executive function capability in undergraduates as they pour through over the decades? It's hard not. to separate whether I'm getting worse and worse or whether they're getting better and better. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but from my point of view, my students are more terrific all the time. I mean, they're always wonderful. Mm -hmm. But I am a, a perfect example of miserable sampling because mm -hmm. I've had a life... Uh, that's been fortunate enough to be teaching at Harvard, followed by teaching at Stanford for 21 years, followed by teaching at Columbia University for 33 years. So it's not exactly random sampling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brendan asks, this is, I think, a universal question of uh, parents. What can parents do to promote the development of self-control? And is there a key age that this sort of needs to be done by? And ex ex teachers probably also have this question. Uh, it's a terrific question. Uh, the, the key age is from the moment 
that you conceive or even think about conceiving. That's very uh, young. young. Yeah, it's very young. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm, I'm quite serious about this because I think that one of the important findings that comes out of the last 30 years of mind-brain behavior research hmm. is that stress in young kids, including in utero, but including in the first and second and third year of life, is really poisonous. That high stress levels, which activate the heart system, which slow the development of the high cool system. High stress or constant stress? Is there a difference? Uh, I mean, you can have extreme stress. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, are trying to kill each I, other. I'm, 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 I'm talking about r repeated exposures mm -hmm. to stress. Okay. Um, so or, it's or, or a chronic stressful environment okay. are really uh, perfect for for slowing the development or making the development of the cool system very problematic, and having the hot system going. What's the so, mechanism of that? Do you think? Uh, I think the mechanism of that is that stress automatically activates reflexive behaviors. Huh. I mean, we're, we're, yeah, you have stress, and so when there's nothing you can do, uh -huh. you've got a terrific situation for developing a sense of helplessness because there's nothing you can do. And the stress is primarily in the relationship. Sort of Parental relationships, or the stress is from whatever. No, the stress is from ever from whatever it is that is producing distress in the child. Uh, it could be from uh, from parents who are fighting with each other all the time. Mm -hmm. Studies suggest that even raised voices uh, register and 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 affect the sleeping life of the child. So I'm saying keep the stress levels low is a good idea. But if we get beyond the first year or two, okay, uh -huh. uh, keep your promises. If you want your children to be able to delay gratification, make oh, sure that if you, if you make promises that you keep them, that it's build trust relationships. And that secondly, also? you know, uh, realize that you're a model for the children and your own behavior is going to be reflected in a lot of the things that they do. So some of these things are banal, they're so obvious. Uh, but they're also very important. Keep your promises. Is that also true of your threats? Yeah, absolutely, it's a promise. In the yeah, future. yeah. I mean, keep keep your promises both for the good consequences that can come and for the for the punishments. So the parental role, in a sense, is this kind of reliable continuity that you're putting out there that the the kid can count on some things. Uh, being there, yeah, and plus the plus the modeling of strategies and how you live your life that mm -hmm. the kids can see, mm -hmm. including your own self reward strategies. That is, uh, we all have as adults we have access to endless goodies of all sorts, mm -hmm. uh, uh, even even you know even if they're not particularly nourishing. Uh, so how we deal with them. Uh, is something that our kids are certainly going to pick up on. One of the questioners here, what is, do you have sort of marshmallow equivalent tests for adults? Uh, there have been desperate attempts to make some, uh, <laughs> uh, but they're, they're, uh, they really have not succeeded. Uh, it's, it's, Why do you uh, think? Uh, I mean, I think it would take another career to do that. Um, I, I think a lot of people are trying to do it. Well, they are having careers. 
A uh, question from Anonymous. Are there any examples of a society consciously shifting to a cool brain policy? And can it happen with groups of people? Um, and when he, now we're getting, I think, to sort of education and how various uh, groups and societies and whatnot think about and, and do their education and what's the variety there, how's it work? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, there are clear differences both within societies and between societies mm -hmm. uh, in how school systems work, for example, mm -hmm. uh, how healthcare systems work. Uh, there are societies in which when women are pregnant, uh, there's a social worker who connects with the pregnant woman and tries to be really a, uh, a, a support. Uh, I think you mentioned Switzerland, does it? Yeah, I think... Uh, say say to, how that works. Well, in, in, uh, my understanding is that in Switzerland, part, part of the service programs that are available mm -hmm. uh, include a connection that's formed between a, a, uh, a healthcare worker mm -hmm. who becomes a, su a support and an advisor and a helper uh, to a mother when she becomes pregnant. And that that continues for a number of years for the critical first four, five, six years of life. Uh, it would certainly have a, a helpful effect if we're thinking particularly of people who are living without support services mm -hmm. in very high-risk environments, mm -hmm. in very stressful environments. And this speaks, I presume, to you things like um, maternity leave and now paternity leave uh, practices in yeah. some companies. Yeah, I, I think it very clearly speaks to things of, of that kind. Uh, Ryan asks, uh, is anything turned up in your research related to gender? Do the boys and the girls have? Yeah, for years I thought it doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. But when we look at the, at the findings cumulatively, there's actually a huge uh, sex difference, uh, which is the, the, the girls are much better at it. Well, well, well. Does that, the, does that really surprise you? <laughs> no. <laughs> but I didn't expect that much clarity, frankly. Um, I didn't expect it either. I, w I was surprised uh, by the finding because when we look at it within studies, mm -hmm. we didn't see it and we kept looking and then we stopped looking and it's actually there when you put it all together. Is there a, potentially an age difference there that like your daughters were getting that kind of no, executive uh, No, because earlier? it's with age controlled. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you just... Yeah, so apart, the boys never get it. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, obviously, you know, boy, boys do get it, but mm -hmm. they, uh, they may not get it as early as girls. Um, this may apply on the society level. Brian Schulman asks, how do we cool responses and overreactions to fears like terrorism on a large scale, especially in a context where fear arousal-driven messages uh, keep coming at us? It's a hard. It's a hard question uh, to answer. Um, I think that um, the cool system. If you use your cool system, you you realize that President Obama was not so wrong in what he said when he compared the number of uh, people who uh, uh, killed themselves by stepping the wrong way into a bathtub 
-huh. in the United States, which I think was something like 417 or something reported cases of bathtub deaths by accident, uh -huh. uh, to, the, uh, to the number uh, under 100, under 50, under 30, uh -huh. uh, who uh, were killed by terrorists in the United States. I mean, I think he got into a lot of trouble for making the comment. Uh, I hope I'm repeating it accurately. Uh, but I think that keeping a perspective on it and realizing uh -huh. that it's like airplane fears. Uh -huh. uh, airplanes are a safer mode of transportation than walking on the streets. Uh, but people are have airplane terror uh -huh. especially after a plane crashes uh -huh. and 300 people get killed. So I think, I think, again, it's a matter of if you focus on it, it's terrifying. Uh, if you think about what are really the statistics, it's, a, it's cooler. But if you, I mean, it's traumatic. Kevin Kelly asks, um, do groups of kids behave differently in the test? If they're deciding as a team with team consequences, is, has that been tried with this uh, kind of test? As far as I know, it hasn't been studied, but it's a very interesting question. What would be your prediction, your hypothesis? Uh, my, my hypothesis is if you have a team, and the team forms with the goal of self-regulating, huh. uh, they, they will work Mm -hmm. pretty well together and be able to do it, if, that, if that's their goal. And they keep an eye on each other and... Yeah, and then they, incur, they, they offer mutual support for it. On the other hand, if the goal is to see how much you can do the way in which the kid I described who opened the Oreo cookies licked out the inside did, mm -hmm. it could be a terrific way of instructing criminal behavior. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and, I mean, it I, mean like I, I want to emphasize that delayability and self-regulatory skills, the cognitive skills that make it possible to take the future into account, mm -hmm. are tremendously important, but they can be used for good or evil. Mm -hmm. I mean, they can be used to, to, uh, to have really the best crime organization or the, or the best terrorist group. Uh, uh, they can be used, or they can be used for social good. Mm -hmm. The ability to play the long game is independent of what the game is you're yeah. playing. Yeah, it's, it's independent of what the goals are and whether they are consistent with our moral values. Uh, Paul asks, we saw a number of factors that in your longitudinal studies were correlated with, with the, uh, how people, how long they waited on the marshmallows. Um, I was wondering if there were any factors you measured that were not associated with delayed gratification. So you saw things that were associated. Um, were there ones that you were interested or surprised that uh, that didn't connect at all? Well, I, I, I'm not surprised. We actually predicted it. But one of the things we find is that, uh, particularly in the Bing sample, which is a sample of kids clearly from the top of the socioeconomic uh, ladder, uh, um, it's, uh, it's very hard to predict financial, long-term financial outcomes uh, because there is, uh, you know, everybody did well. Uh -huh. uh, everybody did well, and yet there's a, there's a range in how well they did, and you don't even know what it means. That is, is it, is it a more successful life to have made a fortune, or to, uh, is it a more successful life to be a middle school teacher uh, who, uh, you know, went to Stanford or went to Harvard, but is devoting a life to teaching kids. Uh. Well, it does raise the question of um, 
because <laughs> I, I didn't see it in there. Is there a correlation with the delay comfort people being, quote, better parents? Well, I think I think that it's very hard to be a good parent if you're not able anyway. to control you. <laughs> hey, period. It's very hard to be a good parent, and it's very hard to be a good parent. It's probably impossible to be a, a good parent if you don't have any self-control. I mean, then because it's for um, obvious reasons. Kevin Kelly asks: um, Has any of this been tried on animals? Are any animals that exhibit more self-control than others? Yeah, there have been a lot of studies with uh -huh. animals. Lots of studies with animals. Uh, I mean, uh, not asking: Do some animals have more self-control than others? I mean, uh -huh. the self-regulation in ants is terrific. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, yes, animals self-regulate, and most of them, uh, their self-regulation patterns are automatic, so mm -hmm. they're really part of the animal's mm -hmm. uh, heart system. Uh, but there are, uh, there are things that, uh, that animals don't, are not, do not seem able to do, that children are able to do. Um. <laughs> Obviously, again. You know. Question on longitudinal studies in general. Alexander Rose asks, how did you track your subjects for so long and, and what percentage were you not able to keep track of? Um, it's, it's become much easier to keep track of participants since the, since the information technology uh, revolution because right. we're in touch with them by email and right, so on. Right, right. Whereas before that, with address changes and the mail and so on, it was a kind of really very, very difficult. So until email developed, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was hard to keep track uh, of people. But uh, there's, there's still a substantial cohort uh, that we are in touch with. Mm -hmm. But I also think that all the media attention uh, makes the, uh, the chance of doing really good research currently Mm -hmm. tough because these kids now adults have been so studied and hmm. so you know in, in the news mm -hmm. uh, that um, it becomes harder and harder well there's a pulse that just happened when your book came out i guess last year and um so suddenly there's you know a bunch of recognition and public interest in the marshmallow test and what it what it means um what's your sense of does this mean that there's now a new generation of people doing sort of more refined marshmallow tests and the research goes on, or people figuring that, well, okay, that's all done now, we know what we need to know and we can quit? No, I think, I think uh, to me, the most, one of the most interesting things about, about uh, the research my students and I have done is that it comes in the last 15, 20 years with an enormous amount of work by other people uh -huh. who are particularly interested in seeing how what these kids are doing uh -huh. uh, registers in the brain. Uh -huh. So the question of how does, uh, how does when you change the appraisal of a cookie to focus on its, you know, on its, on its uh, shape uh -huh. uh, rather than it's on its taste, what happens huh. in the brain? Okay. Uh, and uh, so uh, I'm not going to try to summarize. Is that going uh, from the amygdala to the frontal cortex? Uh, well, I mean, the, the question up? of what are the pathways and what is the interaction between mm -hmm. the different parts of the brain mm -hmm. uh, that are involved in, in executive function has become a very hot, large topic 
in in uh, both neuroscience and social psychology, and in the collaboration between the two areas. So, I mean, my my long-winded answer here is yes, it's a huge area now, mm-hmm. with a five-fold increase in the number of studies that have uh, that are going in in the last fifteen or so years. Um, Ringai asks: Schools are now starting to quote measure grit. Uh, what do you think of this, and is this something that can be done and uh, should be taught within things I think like it's large te- public I think, schools? I think it's terrible. Uh, and I, Measuring I, grit. Uh, yeah, and I think Angela Duckworth, who is a friend and a colleague and a, mm-hmm. uh, with whom I've uh, uh, had a lot of connection, strongly agrees and wrote a powerful piece on the topic in the New York Times just uh, quite recently, saying it's a disaster if schools try to measure grit. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to, so don't do it. On the other hand, she herself is, of course, trying to measure grit. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to understand how kids manage to wait for two cookies or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, it would be terrible, I think, if this were really turned into a test and had the same kind of fate that things like the SAT do. Oh my gosh, right. Uh, So I'm all against the use of this as a way of categorizing kids because I'm enormously impressed by the fact that while there are correlations Mm -hmm. that I described briefly, Mm -hmm. you know, in my short remarks, uh, there are at least three different trajectories. There are kids who are consistent as we study them over the years. Mm -hmm. They are kids who begin with low Mm self-regulation and get better and better over the years. And there are kids who begin with high self-regulation and get worse and worse over the years. Mm -hmm. So all three trajectories are going. Mm -hmm. The funding and the attention has been on the consistent kids. But there are two two funding agencies less interesting trajectories Mm. that to me as a psychologist, as a parent, as a human being are more interesting, Mm -hmm. which are what on earth is going on when kids start high, which means we know they know how to do it and something is happening to reduce it and reduce it. And what's what's going on in the ones who start low and somehow make it and keep Mm -hmm. going the other way. So uh, if I had another lifetime ahead, I'd go for it. Uh, Mm -hmm. My students, however, are going for it and want very much to get the funding and the opportunities to study those trajectories. So you're not in favor of measuring grid as a sort of a filter for um, various things, but you're... I'm against it, whether it's grid or whether it's delay of gratification, if it's used to categorize kids into fixed slots. Because I think we're talking about sets of skills Mm -hmm. that that are important to have, uh, but that don't don't freeze people Mm -hmm. into 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 categories. That the mistake is to try to do that. Well, you're interested in training it in schools, and you mentioned the KIPP schools. I forget what KIPP stands for. Knowledge is Power Program. And, what and it's, it's something that was organized by uh, Dave Levin and, and the collaborator, uh, and that uh, uh, is an attempt now with about 150,000 kids in schools all over the country uh, to see if the uh, kinds of lessons that are coming 
uh, out of uh, mind-brain behavior research can be incorporated into the curriculum. Uh-huh. And, you th and they're deciding it can, it sounds like. Well, they, they are, are deciding that it can, and they seem to be doing a very good job of it. Uh, but but my, my own feeling is that rather than measuring kids', uh, uh -huh. kids uh, uh, grit, for example, uh -huh or measuring the degree to which a school is you know, teaching uh -huh. kids to be gritty, uh, that, that which are the phrases that uh -huh. uh, they get used, uh, that it would be you know, uh, uh, much more interesting to have incorporated into the curriculum, uh -huh. uh, even for young kids, how my brain works, you know, uh, how I can you know, uh, uh, change what I think and feel. Uh -huh. Uh, and that if kids beginning at a young age uh, would have that, it's at least as, you know, as important as uh, sex education, to have brain education and to understand how we think and feel and what, how we regulate ourselves or don't. I mean, is that, is that troubling you? Or? No, not at all. I'm uh, enjoying this century. Um, Walter, you've been around even longer than I have. I'm 77 years old. 86. 86. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've seen a lot of weird shit go by. And, <laughs> and a lot of stuff has gotten better. And we've seen our own uh, selves and the people we know, our cohort, change over time. And we've seen, in your case, the discipline of get more refined over time and take on interesting problems and solve some of them. Um, what do you think an alert older person like yourself who is interested in all of this sees that and can transmit that, say, the younger ones can't? You know, what's the advantage of age in this kind of uh, perspective? If any. But what's the advantage of age? Uh, of in thinking about this whole domain um, and acting on this domain. I'll frame it a little bit. Um, my sense is that older people are more comfortable with long-term issues and responsibility because they've seen quite a few. And there's a lot of things that they know are just distractions because they've seen so many of them go by and they really didn't matter after all. So they get down to a little more essence -y type stuff. And so long-term thinking and maybe long-term behavior, responsible behavior, it comes a little more naturally to a person who's been around for a few decades than someone who hasn't yet. Well, I mean, I, I think uh, uh, age can do two things. Uh, uh -huh. uh, it, can, uh, it can give you perspective, which is what you're talking about, yes. and it can give you Alzheimer's. <laughs> uh, uh, so... <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would like to also say a word for, uh, as, a, as a scientist who takes science seriously, I would like to put in a good word for the importance of luck. Mm. I think I think luck is a here, very, here. very very important factor in in how uh, how the how life plays out. How do you train for luck? 
<laughs> or in a sense, I suppose, training well, for I mean, you know, I mean, recognizing I, I, and responding. I, I'm going uh, to take, uh, Stuart, I'm going to take your question seriously because Good. I think there's luck and I think there's recognizing luck, recognizing opportunity. Ah. And so it isn't just luck because a lot of people can have luck and not even know it. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you don't have Alzheimer's, maybe part of what comes with aging is, is gratitude and a recognition mm -hmm. that one has been lucky you know, to live and not have Alzheimer's. <laughs> so uh, the, the, the good thing about that is that it allows one to, uh, you know, to suspend uh, some of the uh, usual daily pressures of the, of the active or, that's years and I mean, let's put the it differently. You know, down. one of the let, let me sidetrack this and uh -huh. say uh, th there's a phrase that I'm sure many of you have heard, which is, you know, when you're young, you build your curriculum vita and you're trying to, you know, uh -huh. focus on that. When you're older, you work on your obituary. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's quite serious. I mean, which is your, you know, where you're, you're trying to do things so that you get remembered well. And that, okay, so that... that that's long-term. That is long-term. <laughs> and, and now we are dealing with the other interesting subject to older people, which is death. Um, and, and the interesting, because, you know, we're short-timers, and uh, short-timers almost are famous for being pretty selfish. You know, you screw it, let's, you know, do stuff, and who cares? Um, on the other hand, most of the older people I know are the, they are short-timers, but they're the opposite of irresponsible about that. What's that about? Is, is that just obituary, legacy building? Well, I mean, uh, it's... It, it, I'm reluctant to generalize because okay. there's so many ways of, you know, being young and yeah. so many ways of getting old. Yeah. Uh, that it's, you know, that, that, that's... But something a, happens when you're three, four, five, and six, and there's something happening probably when you get 70-something, 80-something, 90-something. You know, I think there's a lot that's happening, and I think uh, one of the things that's happening is that the brain really is like everything else about mm -hmm. one. Uh, is going through change, mm -hmm. and uh, and the change is uh, is not uh, one in which the number of skills and so on is increasing, mm -hmm. uh, but where all kinds of things are weakening. So, uh, but I think that recognition also gives uh, can give mm -hmm. a kind of understanding about uh, the finiteness of one's own life. I mean, you know, we're all born. Mm -hmm. uh, as the existentialists say, with a death sentence, because mm -hmm. that's going to happen to everybody. But as you uh, get older and older, you realize that's really waiting. You know that. Uh, on the other hand, we can be talking about Woody Allen and his approach to this, which is, uh, you know, I've always known that everybody dies, but. Uh, uh, I thought that an exception would be made for me, uh, and and so far it's worked. <laughs> Which raises another question, which is um, rewards in the afterlife. Uh, there are a great many people who buy into systems in which uh, there's a kind of a karma which plays out, either in later lives or in an afterlife. Um, 
and one is good in this life in order to be rewarded in the afterlife. How does that play into any of this? Well, I mean, I think what you're saying is tremendously important. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, and I have no humor about it. I uh-huh. think it's tremendously important because I think that what, what happened in the last uh, century is that many people uh, lost a belief in an afterlife. Uh-huh. Uh, lost God, in a uh-huh. sense, and that was the the crisis uh, that still hasn't gone away, but uh-huh. that hit uh, the world after Darwin, uh-huh. and where the conception of, of human nature and who we are uh-huh. uh, shifted as we became part of uh-huh. evolution, um, without prospects of any kind of afterlife and uh-huh. so on. I think that's very hard for very many human beings to accept uh-huh. uh, because what does it mean? It means you're, you're an eye blink, you know, in, uh-huh. a, in your life and the world goes on. It's been around for fucking forever. It's going to go on that way. Right, right, right. Uh, probably, right. unless we blow it up or something, in which case, who cares? Because every year, if you go you know, to a National Academy meeting, there's more universes discovered, more <laughs> galaxies discovered. So, the, so if you ask, what have I learned in my lifetime? I've learned increasingly about the insignificance of it all, uh, in the sense that it's the most significant thing because it's all we got is life, our life. But on the other hand, in a broad perspective, if we're talking about thinking long and thinking big, uh-huh. uh, as, as we chatted about uh, before, uh-huh. uh, the, the main thing that's increased in, in my lifetime from scientific knowledge is everything has gotten bigger. There are more zeros on everything. Uh-huh. It used to be the debates were, is the, is the, is the Earth, you know, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 20, or, or millions of years? Mm-hmm. How long has this thing been around? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, and everything gets larger. The scope of the universe, the nature, uh, there's more and more zeros added to everything. And uh, this, I think, ch- really does change the conception. Well, it makes us smaller in context of that, but then, then we also sort of that we're the ones that can figure out those zeros makes us think that we're pretty big. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we're both pretty big and pretty small. It's, again, it's all we got. <laughs> so we'll come down to the final fundamental question, I guess, is uh, we can look at it a little bit. Can civilization pass the marshmallow test? And you know, climate change might be a sort of a stand-in for uh, what the planetary scale... Um, calling for delayed gratification, grit, all of that stuff uh, might apply. What do you think? Well, I, I, I think you correctly identified me as an optimist. I think mm. you, you're quite right. Uh, I think that um, it is possible for, uh, for human beings to, be, to feel and to be quite agentic and to actually do agentic. stuff. Agentic, what's that? Uh, agentic, uh, to have agency. Okay. To, to be to have agency instead to, of being a victim or something instead of being victims uh-huh. of their biographies of evolution of uh-huh. their whatever uh, and that uh, um, if uh, if if we are agentic there are all kinds of things that uh-huh. we can do 
to make the world a better place, to reduce socioeconomic um, to reduce the, the enormous inequity that exists at present. Uh, is it catching? Is this sense of agency um, something that when more people have it, more people have it? I say it again, the more people... Is it, is it catching? I don't know if optimism is, is or is not, but this sense of we can do something about even seemingly very insuperable problems. Um, we can do something. Is that... A, a, I think that's fundamental to avoid depression, and it's fundamental to to keep going. Um, so it's mental health, but it it also relates to um, can we actually do the deed? Can we actually bear down on difficult problems for decades at a time, maybe centuries at a time? I I see the climate change issue as one planet scale. Everybody's involved, all seven something billion. We caused it, and it's up to us to solve it. Uh, it's not going to be fixed in any given year or any given decade. It takes a century to do that, which is longer than most lifespans at this point. So we're already talking about something, people acting beyond their own lifespan, maybe into their kids and their grandkids. Um, you see that as um, something civilization is up to. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, think, I think it... Uh is extraordinarily difficult for any of us to really uh, make th outcomes that are potentially far, far in the future mm -hmm. become imminent and close and powerful mm -hmm. uh, for us now. Uh, I mean, I talked about my own struggle to make tobacco, mm -hmm. uh, which has an effect within a lifetime, mm -hmm. uh, something vivid and powerful so enough to change the, behavior. You hotted up the bad future of being that guy on the gurney in yeah. the hospital. And so part of what we need to do is hot up the bad future of a planet that's that, that, That's the fundamental message that I've tried to convey in my remarks, which is if we want to, to be effective about preventing long-term catastrophe mm -hmm. and enabling long-term positive outcomes, mm -hmm. we've got to make the distant future vivid, hot, and immediate. Uh, and that's not easy, but it's not impossible. I mean, we can do it through, even through art. We can do it through drama. I mean, there are ways to, because we do have a prefrontal cortex and we do have an imagination, and we, we can anticipate uh, it is, should be possible and is possible. Uh, I mean, Gore did a pretty good job of it, but then, you know, he didn't get elected. So. <laughs> it's all right. Well, I think you just stated the function of the Long Now Foundation, and thank you for doing it. Pleasure. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.